Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7, we're going to read the first 16 verses. This is God's holy and errant word. Please give your full attention. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I have a question for you this morning. If you could choose to live under any type of government, what kind would you choose? I'm sure you've had those moments where you've been very frustrated with our own country and our own leaders, and you would say things like, I'm going to move to Canada. But then you look at Canada and say, well, maybe not. Where else could you live in a government better than our own? If you could choose, would you choose a democracy? Would you choose a monarchy? Would you choose socialism or communism, a dictatorship or a theocracy? What kind of government is the best kind of government and which kind of government would you choose to live under if you could? The American experiment, as they used to call it, of a democratic republic based on a constitution, has been, compared to all the other types of government in world history, an impressive success. 
It was designed by our country's founders to give citizens a voice in how they are governed, which is a good thing. It was designed to put in place many checks and balances to keep those in power from abusing that power. And that's also a good thing. It's because our founding fathers, and I'm not going to get into that whole debate about whether they were Christians or not, only God knows which ones were truly believers and which weren't, but you can say that those founders operated within a Western, European, very generally biblical worldview. And based on that, they understood the sinful nature of mankind. They knew that that sinful nature had to be restrained, that culture needed that order and justice in place in order for people to flourish. And so it was very effective. It's been very effective for a long time. It was a, an effective form of government for a country run by sinners and made up of sinners. But as in the last couple of generations, as our culture has moved farther and farther away, from a biblical worldview and a biblical sense of morality and a biblical sense of justice and ethics, we've seen the effect on our government. It's become weaker. It's become chaotic. It's become messy. And quite honestly, it's not sustainable in its current state and the direction and trajectory it's going. But then when you look at our history as Americans, because of the way we got started, we've always had this very innate distaste for monarchy. We got rid of a king. We have no desire to go back under a king, no matter how much our former associate pastor might have pleaded with us to make America Great Britain again. The same problem that we have encountered with a government that was set up to a, a, allow for our sinfulness it's the same reason that monarchies in the history of mankind have not turned out well, by and large. Human sinfulness corrupts and ultimately destroys kings and queens. And as the old saying goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But here's a hypothetical for you. What if you could find a sinless, perfectly righteous king? What if you could find a king who wholeheartedly loved his people and only ever made decrees and took actions that were for in the best interest of all of his people? If you could find that king and put him on the throne, wouldn't that be the best government you could possibly live under? I would say so. I would say so because that's what's coming in the future. That's our hope. We need leadership. We need leadership to organize and guide us. We need leadership to inspire and motivate us. We need leadership to protect us, and we need leadership to give us hope for the future. And one thing we've learned from human history is that the, that the only thing that is worse than a bad government is no government. We've been studying the covenant of grace. If you're just visiting or have only been with us a short time, last several weeks, we've been looking at the covenant of grace, which is the broad narrative of scripture. It's what ties 
all of the stories and all the instructions and all the rituals that we find in God's word. It's what ties it all together into one beautifully interwoven plan. That's what the covenant of grace is. It's God's promise and God's plan to redeem his people, to save us. We've seen, as we've been looking at how God has revealed this one plan through installments of different covenants that all together make up the overall covenant of grace, we have seen how God's people have developed from a couple cast out of the Garden of Eden because of their sin and rebellion, how as the covenant of grace was revealed to them and the generations after them, it's gone from a couple to a great family to a great nation. A nation that's bound together not by a constitution created by sinful human beings, but a nation that is bound together by a covenant that God has made to those people graciously. Each stage of the development of God's people, as we've been watching it happen through these last several weeks, through the beginnings of Scripture, at each stage it's been marked by a further development of the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace was given to Adam and Eve after they were cast out of the garden because of their sin and rebellion. But with each successive covenant, more and more light is given. More and more details are given about what God has promised and what God has planned. God gave his covenant promise to Adam and then expanded upon it with Noah and then expanded upon it again with Abraham and then expanded upon it again with Moses. And so then today we come to the covenant that God made with David. And we, we see an incredibly important expansion and, and uh, uh, elaboration on the content of this covenant of grace. What's it going to look like as God carries out what he's promised to do? God promises here to give to this people, this family that's become a great nation in a great land. He promises to give them an eternal king to guide and protect and provide for them and give them eternal hope. That's what David's covenant's about. So let's go back and get some of the background first. Before we look at the actual terms of the covenant itself, as we see here in 2 Samuel 7, let's go back and see how this promise of a king, of God giving his people a king to reign over them and over the whole world, that this promise was given all the way back at the beginning. When Satan led Adam and Eve to reject God, to reject their relationship with God, to serve Satan instead of God, to serve, to serve their own desires instead of God's desires, when they decided to covenant with Satan instead of covenant with God, God did not judge them fully as he had promised when the soul who sins should die. That was the terms that they were put in the Garden of Eden. God instead gave them a gracious promise. And the core of that gracious promise that God gave to Adam and Eve was that one day an offspring of the woman would come to crush the head of the serpent, Satan himself, who had deceived them and led them astray. And so the people of God as they formed at the very beginning, were trusting in this promise, even though they had very little understanding of the details and had very little understanding 
of who this head crusher that was going to destroy their enemies completely and reestablish the fellowship with God they had in the Garden of Eden. They had very little understanding of what it was going to look like. Then God comes to Noah. He judges the world that had become so wicked without human government, and he judges the whole world but saves Noah's family. And Noah's family become the hope of this covenant community, that they would be the focus of God's promise moving forward. And God promised in that covenant with Noah, as he reiterated the instructions he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden, he reiterated those same instructions, but he said, this head crusher is still coming, but my promise is that I am going to keep the creation even in its fallen, corrupted state, I'm going to keep it going until my plan and my promises can be fulfilled. Never again will I send a worldwide judgment. I promise you that I will keep the seasons turning. I will keep day and night going. I will keep creation in place in spite of man's sinfulness until his plan and promise can be fulfilled. And an important part of restraining the wickedness of man which would otherwise destroy this creation an important part of that was giving the power of the sword. For him who sheds blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. This power of the sword is given to mankind. Human government was put in place to restrain wickedness, to provide order and justice, to punish the evildoer so that God's plan and purpose for his people could go forward until the head, the head crusher comes. And then a descendant of Noah, Abraham, is given... This promise that out of him, this childless man who could not have children, God gives the promise of a miraculous son born to him and Sarah who would become a great family. And that great family then would become a great nation on the earth. And that great nation on the earth would be the earthly representation of what the kingdom of God looks like. What the power of God's redemptive promises can do in the group of sinners who trust in those promises. And this nation would be placed in a great land, Canaan, a promised land flowing with milk and honey. God was going to place them there. And we know from historical perspective, God placed them at the crossroads of all humanity. At the most important point on earth, he put his people so that they would become a great nation in a great land where they then could fulfill the last promise that God made to Abraham that they would, they would, through this nation, would come one who would bless all nations. And then last, the last two weeks, we've looked at the covenant that God made with Moses. God saved his people by grace. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt as a shadow of the coming spiritual redemption and slavery to sin and death that he would deliver us from, he led them into the wilderness, brought them to his presence on the mountain, and gave, through Moses, his people his law, summarized in the Ten Commandments. And the purpose of that law was to say, you are going to be my kingdom. You are going to represent me before the world. And so you need to live this way. This is what obedience looks like. If I am the one whom you serve, then this is what my will looks like. This is what righteousness looks like, and this is what I expect of you. And so the law was given to guide them, but it also was given, as we saw last week, to show them they cannot keep his law. 
Very quickly they would find out that they cannot obey God. They need grace. But the promise was already in place. He had already delivered them. They already had received the covenant promise that by grace he would redeem and restore his people. And so if they repent of their sin, the grace was always available for them to be forgiven of their sin and restored to a right relationship with him. The law wasn't given to save them. The law was given to a saved people to show them their sin and then as they sought to repent to show them what repentance looks like. What does righteousness look like? What are they striving for? If you truly are trusting in God's promises of grace, then your life will reflect that in an increasing obedience to God's will. How do we know God's will? It's his word as it's been revealed to us. If you believe in the covenant of grace, in the promises God's make, made to you, it'll be revealed in the way you live your life. That when you do sin, when you, and you will break his covenant, that by his spirit you're enabled to repent and turn back and seek his grace for forgiveness, and not only forgiveness, but the power and strength and wisdom to do his will. That's what the law was about, given to Moses. Well, Moses, we know, served like a king. He was the final, you know, the buck stop with Moses. He was the top. He was the authoritative voice. He was not just the king of Israel, but also the prophet of Israel and the priest of Israel. He was, in many ways, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ himself. But he acted like a king as he led the people through the wilderness. But then Joshua was raised up, and he served like a, a conquering king, a, a military king, to lead God's people into this promised land that God had given them. But after they got into the promised land, we know from Scripture that there was an extensive period of time where they had no clear leader. They had no king. They had no military commander. We call it the period of the judges, and the book of Judges is written about it. During that time, because there was no real leaders, overall leadership structure in Israel, as a result, the Israelites would fall into sin over and over again. They'd fall into idolatry, and wickedness would take over, and they would, as a God's either discipline or punishment came upon them, they would become subject to their enemies and oppressed and, and mistreated by their enemies. And so when things reached that state of crisis, God would send a judge. A judge was a temporary deliverer, a temporary leader, military leader, who would come and by God's grace and God's strength would defeat their enemies for a while. But then that judge would go away. It was a temporary deliverance. It was a temporary leader. And they would go back into the same vicious cycle where they would rebel against God, become idolatrous, and become oppressed by their enemies, and then God would send another judge to temporarily deliver them. That's the way the history of the period that Judges went. And you know how the book of Judges ends. It ends with a cry to God. This is what it says in the very last verse, the last chapter of the book of Judges. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The only thing worse than bad government is no government. There was no king in Israel. As a result of that, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We've seen that in our own country, haven't we? As our government has gotten weaker, isn't that really a good way to summarize the ethics, morality, 
of our own country. Everyone seeks to do what is right in their own eyes. This is the state that Israel was in. And they cry out for a king. And Samuel was the last judge. Samuel was both a judge and a prophet. And Samuel, as he was serving as a judge, the people came to him. It was their initiative. The people, came, the people of Israel came to Samuel and said, we need a king. And if they'd stopped the sentence there, God may have said, you're right. You need a king. But they didn't stop the sentence there. They went on with the last clause and unfortunately said, like the other nations. They recognized that they need God's king, but their solution was to find a king like the other nations had. To look at the, the oppressing nations who had made their lives so miserable around them and say, we need a king that is as good at or better than those kings. And so God said to Samuel, don't take this so hard, Samuel. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And so he gave them a king like the nations. He gave the, you know, Saul was not God's choice for the king. Saul was the people's choice. And they got what they wanted. They wanted a, a, a king who was physically impressive, tall, brawny, good looking. Somebody that could compete in terms of physicality and eloquence with the other kings. Who could lead great military battles. And his reign was a disaster. It was God's way of judging his people for rejecting him and his way and the kind of king that he intended to put on the throne. Which brings us to God's choice for a king. Samuel, finally, after sin after sin and failure after failure and Saul's reign, God said to Samuel, go and find this little shepherd boy. I look at the heart. I don't look at the outside. He is a man after my own heart. I want you to anoint him as the king. He's my choice as the king. The literal shepherd to shepherd his people. David, in his humility, patiently waits for God to take the initiative to remove Saul from the throne instead of making it happen in the flesh. And then when God removes Saul, David conquers Jerusalem to make it his capital city to place his throne in Jerusalem at the center of this great land in which God had placed his people. He sets up Jerusalem as the capital of that land. And one of the first things he does, another sign of his faith, that one of the very first actions he takes as the king over all Israel is to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Really important sign of the faith of David. He understood that his throne represented God's throne. The Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God that accompanied the people of God through the wilderness to the promised land. And, God, and David's saying, I'm not going to reign unless God's throne is here because my throne is nothing unless his throne is recognized as the ultimate authority. In a very real sense at this point, God's kingdom has come. In a very real sense. I mean, David was God's king on God's throne in the city chosen by God, in the land chosen by God, and Israel was growing and prosperous and becoming more powerful. And under Solomon, it would become this great nation that was promised earlier. 
And so in a very real sense, you could say, the kingdom has come. This is what we've been praying for. But it was only a shadow. It's only a shadow of far greater king and a far greater kingdom to come. And that's what really 2 Samuel 7, when God meets with David through the prophet Nathan and gives his word and his promise, the covenant promise to David, you're going to see that it's looking forward to a much greater king to come. David, in Jerusalem, had built what is called here a house of cedar, which means it was a luxurious, by that day's standards, it was a luxurious palace David had built for himself, suitable to a great king. But David, as a man after God's own heart, was troubled that he was living in this luxurious palace while the Ark of the Covenant was still in a tent, the tabernacle tent that had accompanied God's people through the wilderness. He said, this isn't right. How can I be at peace living in such a wonderful, beautiful place while the throne of God is still in this tent? And so he goes to Nathan, his prophet, and he says to Nathan, well, he didn't actually, it's implied here, but he's basically saying, Nathan, what do you think? I think I shouldn't live in a house like this. I should build a bigger, better, nicer, more luxurious house for God's throne for the Ark of the Covenant. And Nathan initially says, you know what, David? Man, you are such a man after God's own heart. I love your heart. I love your passion. I love your desire. That's a beautiful, wonderful thing. I love this idea. Your priorities are right. You've got kingdom priorities at, at the top of your priority list. Go for it. Do it. You should build a great temple for the Lord. But it says that same night, that same night, God comes to Nathan and says to Nathan, you spoke too soon. There's a lesson for us here. I just want to point this out as an aside. Those who presume to speak for God, don't speak for God until you first listen to God. Too many people out there speaking for God who don't first listen to God by his word and his spirit. Nathan, I, I would, if I was in Nathan's shoes, I would have reacted the same way. I love what you're doing, David. I love you. This makes sense to me. In light of everything that's happened, this just makes sense to me. Go ahead and build the temple. But God says, that's not my plan. That's not my priority right now. That day will come, but that's not my priority. My priority is to build a house for David. And that's the key to the covenant with David. And to understand that you have to understand in Hebrew, just as it is in English, when you say house, you can be referring to at least two things. You can refer to that dwelling place, that place you're going to drive back to later today and, and pull your car in the driveway and, and walk in the front door. That can be your house. Or... When you say house, you can mean household or family or in a royal, when you talk about royal terms, a dynasty. And so that's what play on words the Lord is doing here with David. You want to build me a house, a dwelling place on earth, but I, I don't want that right now. What I want is to build your dynasty, to build your family, to give you a throne that will last forever, you and your descendants. The core promise of this installment of the covenant of grace is that a royal dynasty would be given to reign over God's people and God's kingdom forever. As you look more closely here at 2 Samuel 7, I want you to notice, first of all, the covenant language. These are going to be familiar things that we've already heard in the earlier covenants. Like I said, these covenants build upon one another. They expand upon one another. 
And so what you're going to hear is very familiar language. First of all, in verse 1, it says, The Lord had given David rest from his surrounding enemies. And then later in verse 11, when God is speaking to David, he says, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. This is covenant language. Because rest was the hope of the covenant. Remember that when um, Noah was named by his father, Noah's name in Hebrew meant rest. Because Noah's father was trusting in the promise given to Adam and Eve that one day one would come to crush the head of the serpent, to defeat the enemies of God and his people, and to restore the fellowship of Eden between God and his people. That's the rest that Noah's father hoped for and thought maybe my son might give that rest. Well, Noah did give that rest in a very temporary and lesser way, but it pointed to a far greater rest to come. And then David comes and God gives him rest from all of his enemies and enemies of God's people and enemies of God. He gives him rest temporarily and he promises to give rest in the future. This is the rest that we, the ultimate rest we still hope for that the head crusher will bring. Then in verse 3, Nathan affirms to David that the Lord is with you. That's a covenant assurance. Why is the Lord with David? Well, because David trusted in the covenant promises. And then it says in verse 7, God refers to all the places. He says, all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. I've been with the people of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant represented his presence, the cloud of pillar, the, the, and the, the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. These represented God's presence. God was with his people in spite of their many sins throughout the wilderness. And then in, um, in verse, uh, let's see, I'm missing the verse here. Um, verse 9, and I have been with you wherever you went. God reminds David, I have always been with you. Why? because he trusted in God's covenant promise. This is the core, you've heard me say this a number of times, this is the core, often repeated promise of the covenant of grace that you hear at the very beginning of scripture and you hear it multiple times throughout scripture and you hear it at the very end of scripture. I will be your God, you will be my people. I am with you. Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Emmanuel meant. God with us, that's the core covenant promise. How can God be with us when we are such sinners? That's what the covenant of grace answers. And then I want you to notice the repetition of the earlier promises to Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses. He says in verse 9, And I will make for you a great name. Very reminiscent of what God had said to Abraham. He said, And I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Abraham would be the father of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel would be a great nation. This would this promise, but it pointed to a far greater kingdom to come. Then in verse 10, God says, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. A place of rest. As God said to Abraham, remember, I give you this land to possess. And then in verse 10, Verses 12 through 14, you get to the promise of the house that God is going to build for David. He says, I will raise up your offspring after you. Does that ring a bell? The offspring. The offspring of these recipients of the covenant is always the focus of the promise. 
the hope of this, these, all these promises coming true is in the offspring to come. And so God says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now this had a literal soon fulfillment because Solomon actually built the temple. Solomon built a glorious temple for the Ark of the Covenant. Solomon was David's son, and God said, he will be my son, and he will reign, and I will make his name great, and I'll put him over a great nation and a great land. He is the offspring of David. He was the initial fulfillment, but he was not the ultimate fulfillment. There would be more generations to come. Ultimately, another great son of David would come as the promised offspring or the promised seed of the woman, the one who would be the head-crushing savior that all of these spiritual forefathers put their hope in. And he would defeat Satan, defeat all of God's enemies, even our greatest enemy, death, and he would bring eternal rest and would reign as the king of kings and the lord of lords, this offspring of David. The whole rest of the Old Testament elaborates on this promise of the coming son of David who would be God's Messiah, who would crush the head of the serpent, who would reign over all nations and bring the blessings of his kingdom to all nations. I do want to address the conditional language here because when you read the beginning of that promise about the offspring of David, your mind immediately goes to Christ if you've been a Christian for any time at all. But realize there are many generations of sons of David who some of them served the Lord well, although still sinned, and some of them served very poorly. Some of them became apostate. Some of them came under God's judgment. And so God actually acknowledges that in the promises made to David. Like the covenant with Moses, there's conditional language here. You see, our relationship with God is based upon grace alone, but God gives his people the law that they might see their sin in need of grace. What that means is that our response to God's will, as it's revealed in God's law, is going to reveal our heart. Do we truly believe the promises of grace or do we not? And those who don't, they might bear the name of the kingdom of God, they might bear the name of the king of the kingdom, but if they don't truly trust in God's promise of grace, then they will not obey. They will not repent. They will turn to the ways of the world and turn away from God. And so the law is not given to save anyone. The law was given to a saved people. The law was given to a redeemed people, a delivered people. And it was given for multiple purposes. First of all, to show them they cannot keep the law. That is not their hope. Secondly, to show them that this is how, this is what repentance looks like. When you sin and you will sin, and you want to know what repentance looks like, look to God's law, look to God's will, look to God's word to know what repentance looks like. And know that when you repent and seek to live your life increasingly according to God's will as it's revealed in his law and in his word, you will be blessed. That promise is always there. You will be blessed. That doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. You're a sinner living among sinners. You're still going to suffer. You're in a fallen world, you're still going to suffer. But you will know the blessing of God if you seek to do his will. 
And Jesus over and over said that obedience to him, if you love me, obey my commandments. That obedience is still an important part of living as part of a redeemed people in the covenant of grace. And so that's what the law was given to for in the days of Moses. That's the purpose of it. But it's also given to the same purpose to David's sons, the kings who would reign over Israel. It says in verse 14, when he, speaking of David's royal descendant, commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. He actually spells this out when he speaks to Solomon. When Solomon comes to the throne immediately after David, God, when he meets with Solomon to renew the covenant with Solomon, he says this about the importance of him obeying God's will. He says, and as for you, this is First uh, Kings 9 verses 4 through 7. And as for you, Solomon, if you walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have constructed, that I have consecrated for my name, will be cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. David's descendants were to live by and rule by God's will as it's revealed in the law. That's what it meant to bring God's throne to David's throne. Solomon on the throne was to rule under the will and purposes of God as the true king of Israel. Loving and thankful obedience is always to be the response of God's people to God's grace and to his promises. And doing God's will is the way to blessing. That's what the law of God teaches us. When David's descendants broke the law, we saw one of two things happen. When David's descendants, the other kings, the sons of David, who sat on the throne over Israel, they either, when they did sin, and they all did, they either trusted in God's promise of grace and forgiveness and restoration and accepted God's discipline and repented of their sin, like David. David sinned horrifically but he repented and turned back to the will of God. He was a man after God's own heart. Or many, most of David's sons, unfortunately, rejected God's promises of grace, rejected God's law, continued in sin and idolatry, led the country astray, and eventually were judged and cast off. You see, that's still in the church. You're going to have some people who sin but repent and are restored by grace. You're going to have other people who are part of the church, but they don't truly trust in the promises of grace. They don't truly seek the Lord, and eventually they're going to continue in sin and fall away. It is true among the, kings, the sons of King David as well. Some of David's believing descendants would be disciplined for their sins, but many of his unbelieving descendants would be judged. But... Just when you think, well, wait a minute, I thought this was an unconditional promise. I thought this was a promise that we could count on, that this head-crushing savior and king would arrive. Well, the language here makes it clear that even though David's sons would disappoint and fall away, many of them, that God's promise would never be annihilated, never be ended, 
In verse 15 and 16, it says, But my steadfast love will not depart from him. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. There's a beautiful example of this later on. One of David's later sons, great, 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 great grandson, one of his later descendants, King Jehoram, became an evil king. One of these kings that took the other path and rejected God's will. And in 2 Kings 8, it says this about King Jehoram. It says, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. The rebellion and idolatry and sinfulness of David's descendants would not eradicate the promise that God had made to David. This head crusher will come. This king will take the throne. In Jeremiah 33, I love this, I love this promise that God makes in Jeremiah 33, especially as we tie, tie all these covenants together. In verses 20 and 21, Jeremiah the prophet gives us the word of the Lord. It says, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time. What's he referring to there? The covenant with Noah. That's, it was the covenant with Noah where God says, I'm going to make sure that day and night still follow each other, that seasons still follow each other, that the creation will continue until God's plan of redemption can be completely fulfilled. And so he's referring to the covenant with Noah saying, if, you can break, if, I, if that could ever happen that I would break that covenant and go against my word, then he says, also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he should not, shall not have a son to reign on his throne. That promise cannot be broken. God has made it unconditionally. David's lesser sons didn't crush the serpent's head. David's lesser sons did not provide eternal rest for God's people. And that's why the prophets of the Old Testament pointed forward to a greater son to come. And this is where I'm going to lead you to an extremely familiar verse, but I'm going to ask you to take it out of context, not context of scripture but out of context in which we normally think of it Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 this is a momentous statement God says through the prophet Isaiah for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That is not a sentimental line in some Christmas card. That is a momentous declaration that is the hope of God's people. It's a declaration of worldwide dominion for the soul crusher king, the, the, the head crusher king who would come to take the throne of David forever. The one who would be, according to the prophets, fully David's son in the flesh and fully God's son in his essence and nature. Human and divine. That son was born to the Virgin Mary. And as she conceived him in her womb, this is what the angel explained to her. He said, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is the one who, along with John the Baptist, when he began his earthly ministry, proclaimed to everyone who would hear that the kingdom of God was at hand. The kingdom of God was among them. This is the one who, when he was offered all the kingdoms of this world, just by doing one simple thing, bowing a knee and serving Satan instead, who said to Satan, which Adam should have said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This was that promised second Adam who would come and obey, resist every temptation and thought, word, and deed, and would do the will of God, follow the law of God, and do the will of God perfectly without exception in every thought, word, and deed. This is the one. This is the one who cast out demons. There's a reason why demonic activity was so prevalent in the days of Jesus and the apostles, because the king had come. The head crusher had come. And when they accused him of being in league with Satan by this unique power he had to cast out demons, remember what he said, if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This was the head crusher. This is the one who lived perfectly and then died as a sacrifice in the place of God's people. And by doing that, conquered the accuser. It says in Revelation 12 that the accuser is cast down when Christ crushed him at the cross by enduring the penalty that our sins and then crushed him completely and finally when he walked out of the tomb alive conquering our worst enemy death itself this is the one that David promised when he wrote Psalm 16 that his soul would not be abandoned to the grave and his body would not see corruption he wasn't talking about himself it says in the New Testament he was talking about his greater son to come this is the one who said to his disciples after he was, he was resurrected from the dead, as he was ascending to his throne in heaven over all nations, over all peoples, over the entire universe, this is the one who said to his disciples, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations in my authority. This is the one who will return in power and glory one day. And on that day, the angels will shout, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, having defeated all of our enemies and giving us the gift of eternal rest in his kingdom. Just want to close with one simple thought. The earliest And most important creed of the church is not the Apostles' Creed, as important and early as it is. The earliest and most important creed of the church is the one you see in the book of Acts. Jesus is Lord. That means Jesus is King. Jesus is the King of kings. Jesus is the Lord of lords. He's your Lord. He is your King. He's revealed his will to you 
in his word. He has said, if you love me, obey my commandments. But he has died to cover and atone for all the times when you fail. He is the good shepherd king who loves his sheep dearly. This is the key to your identity. God raises up kings and he casts down kings. Empires come and empires go. But Philippians 3.20 reminds us, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King Jesus Christ. That is our hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness in fulfilling your promises. Not one of your promises has ever failed. And what's amazing is that we look back over the course of Scripture as we've been doing this survey at a 10,000-foot view, looking at how Scripture all weaves together the same narrative and story. We are just blown away by how you have fulfilled every one of these promises. Ultimately, your promise to send the head crusher, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank you that you've opened our eyes. Thank you that we live on this side of the resurrection, the ascension. Thank you that the kingdom is already here and that its influence is expanding to the four corners of the earth. And thank you for the hope we have that soon our Lord and our King is going to return to restore all of the blessings of Eden and to introduce us into eternal rest in his presence. Father, thank you for your promise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.